thank you everyone for returning to Out of the Main. John, I guess I should thank you for returning to Out of the Main. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. That this is true. See? So I, I don't yeah. know if I want to thank you. I'll determine as we go, perhaps. Okay. Um, I bring the cred. Yes. Go ahead. So we need to remind listeners of the episode we did on the Maxis Project album band, whatever you want to call it, for which listener Yorn joined us and brought for, I guess, uh, technical support, his son, Michael. Yes, Michael came on, and it turns out that he and I have a connection, which then relates to the connection to our guest, because he and I are both Berkeley students, and our guest is now, what, an associate professor at Berkeley College of Music. Is that right, Tom? It's actually assistant professor, but that's assistant cool. Assistant professor. Assistant. Yeah. Assistant professor. Yeah, none other than that voice you hear, which is Mr. Marty Walsh. Marty, thank you for joining the podcast. Hey, it's my pleasure, man. Love doing these kind of things. Yeah, so I don't know uh, if your ears were burning at all. We did bring you up uh, on that episode, and Michael uh, promised he would hook us up with you because you have quite a lot of stories to tell beyond Berkeley, which I'm sure we'll come back to. But um, we started talking about some of the session gigs that happened back in the day that, John, you and I have covered is it ad nauseum or just covered appropriately on a uh, <laughs> podcast yeah. discussing Yacht Rock and the West yeah. Coast sound? It today, so it's so what Michael told us was Marty that you were not only part of those sessions, but we go to your website and you call yourself a second call session musician. So tell us what you mean by that and what your connection was to what we now know as the yacht rock era. Well, uh, the um, the deal was you know, I come up in the 70s and I'm a little younger than my one of my main mentors Jay Graydon you know who I knew since I was 12 years old he played in a band with my brother when they were in high school Jay was very uh uh instrumental in me having a career and and he was number you know at a point he was first call so there's always been like who's first call it was you know I think I think you probably would have said Louis Shelton in the beginning of the 70s and then that transferred to Larry Carlton, who was first. I mean, but there's a bunch of guys. Dean Parks was great. I mean, there's all these guys, but there was always kind of like we all kind of referred to someone as like, oh, he's really the top dog. Larry leaves Session Land and gives Jay all of his accounts. Jay leaves Session Land and gives Lukather all his accounts. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, there's a bunch of us. And so people were calling me and going, yeah, Jay, great, you know. I mean, Jay Graydon recommended you. So, I mean, Luke Ather can only do, Luke can only do so many dates. I mean, he's, you know, he's always one person. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> I would always, you know, say, yeah, well, I'm second call, man. Like Luke's first call. But, you know, there's a bunch of us that are, that were, we were all working all the time, you know. There were many times where I would get to a session and it would be the second day of tracking. And Luke was on the first day. And it was like, yeah. yeah, well, Luke did the first day, but he was busy on the second day. So they called me. So I'm like, okay, cool. You know? <laughs> second call, you know. It's not like you missed out on, get, well, I don't know what you missed out on, but when I look at the list of credits that you got, whether it be uh, Donna Summer, Neil Diamond, uh, Barbara Mandrell, I'm looking at the list here, uh, the producers that you worked with, I and mean, we're talking all the big guys, we're talking Foster, obviously Graydon, we're talking the, you know, we're, we're talking the, the same sessions. You're, we're putting you right into the same sort of playpen that all of these guys are. So that's why we wanted to bring you on and see, can we get a little bit of the behind the scenes? How does a session work? What are the expectations? Things like that. Maybe things you even cover in some of your classes. But uh, 
My first question regarding that is, uh, what were the expectations like when you were called to go to a session? To what degree did you know what you were going to be playing? And then what equipment expectations were that you would bring? I mean, did you have to have like a Strat, a Tele, and a Les Paul and some sort of hollow body? Were you, were you expected to have a dictionary of sounds available or was it you brought your guitar? How did this all work? Well, back then, uh, I'm talking like late seventies. I played, I played on a lot of demos in the, in the mid to late seventies, but, um, but back, uh, I had done a lot of touring and then I wanted to get into sessions and I knew that the way it operated because Jay was my mentor and, and he hipped me to how, how it all works. I remember being at his house in North Hollywood when he was just starting to do sessions and he had all of these anvil cases there. And he said, I get to his pad and he goes, Hey, Marty, see those? And they're these big gas cases, right? And he goes, That's the psychological end of the studio business, you know? And so, okay, you have to have cases with a lot of stuff in them, right? So I wound up in, uh, you know, late 70s, I wound up going, Okay, I go to Valley Arts Guitar. I buy a Fender Esquire, 59 Fender Esquire. I buy my acoustic guitar. I buy my nylon string. I buy a 12 string. I have my Strat. I've got my Les Paul. I got, you know, I've got everything pretty much covered, but I wasn't like doing mandolin and, and odd string instruments and things like that that you get called for for a lot of film work. You know, I wanted to do record dates, you know? So you get all this gear. And then I found out through a guy named Mike Baird, who's a drummer, that, that oh, yeah, you know, there's these cartage services that have, that house all your gear. So I, you know, kind of, I got my cases and I put them all with a cartage service in LA. And then you show up. Um, and then when you get to the gig, the cartage guys have unpacked all your stuff. Your pedal board's there, your amp's there, you're, you're all plugged in, your guitar's sitting on a stand, you know, and you sit down and you play, depending on whatever, you know, sometimes you just swap out the guitar or whatever like that. When you're done, you call them, hey, I'm done, and they come and send the truck with the lift gate, and they come, pack it all up, and they take it back to the warehouse, you know? Marty, do you remember, like, what one of your more challenging sessions was through the context of, of this, which is, you know, we read about Lukather coming in and, and ripping off take zero and he's done for the day or whatever. And some of those session cats were just so good the first or second time through. Do you remember a challenging session where maybe you follow that? Like you said, you were on there on the second day and you were expected to have one or two takes and it better be good. Well, they were really kind of, you know, honestly, they're all that way because when you play with these caliber of people, you know that Jeff Picaro is going to get his take in the first run, you know, running through second take done. That's the way all, all the A team people that you could work with, the keyboard players, bass players, drummers, guitar, you know, there were always multiple guitar players on sessions. There usually there was back in the early days. And that was just the expectation. If you, if you're cutting that, you know, you're working for a producer. I, I did a lot of work for a guy named Michael Omardian, who was just absolutely brilliant. He he really got me my start. I mean, between Jay and Omardian, um, I I really got rolling, you know. And and Michael Omardian calls you, books you on two days of tracks, two three hour sessions per day, 
and you're going to cut 10 or 12 songs. To give you, Omar would write a chart, and it would typically have the bass line written in his keyboard part. This is pretty typical. Foster kind of the same way. Keyboard part, bass line. Bass, bass players have to know how to read. And then guitar players, they go, you know, find something that works in there, you know. And the drummer's got the chart, and he knows what the bass line is, so he knows what kick drum's going to happen. And, you know, you, you might listen to a demo, and when you're listening to the demo and you got the chart, you got your pencil, and you're thinking right away, oh, okay, football's here. You're meaning um, uh, chords that you just Diamonds. hit as on a yeah. downbeat and hold for a bar. Um, arpeggiated riff here. Um, fill here, you know, and before you ever sit down to play and you're writing this stuff on the chart because you're coming up with these ideas as you're rolling, right? You walk out into the studio, you put the chart on the stand. You, you Now you've got kind of an idea. You have your your form that you've you got, you got to be able to read. You got to be able to navigate, repeat signs and DSL coda and all this stuff. And, um, and you have the notes that you've taken. So, you know, now you're, you know, as you're kind of, they're working on things with the engineer teams working on stuff and you're, you got your headphones on, you're working on your sound. So you're dialing something in that gets you through the basic track. Cause you know, you're going to have to do a lot of overdubs, you know, you're going to play the drummer and the bass player and the piano player, for instance, are going to play their parts and that's going to be it. You're going to play a part where you're going to have 60, 70% of what's going to go on the record. It's it's second take, third take. Yeah. You know, and the other thing about it is if you make a mistake, like <laughs> like I might be prone to do, ah. you, know, you, you might you might make a mistake, but but here's the key. If you if you make a mistake or, or you or you think like, oh man, I could play that better, or I got an idea for another part, you know, you go back and you listen to the take, right? So you do one take or two takes. You go back and listen. And every time I do that, I've got my chart, I got my pencil, and I'm looking at the counter on the tape machine. Mm. And I'm going, and I've already circled the spots that I need to know that I, I need to fix potentially. So I'm listening back and I go, yeah, minute, 20 seconds, bang, I write that on my chart. You make those notes and then you say to the, the producer, hey, I just got a couple fixes. And you go out to the you go out to the tracking room and you got a mic out there and they can hear you, you know, and you go, yeah, go to a minute 20 or minute 10 or whatever you wrote down and punch in at the third bar of the chorus section. Get me bar. Let me get, let me get three, four and five and then get out. So the engineer starts the tape at that time. The, they know what they're doing. Here comes bar. Here comes the third bar. Bang. They're in. You play bar and bar five. They're out. And you say immediately, okay, go to 155 and get the two bars at blah, blah, blah. So that when, if you make a mistake or if you want to fix something or you want to do something a little bit different, you have to get a really good take with really creative ideas when you're making records. That's what they're after. They're after your personality. You know, they're, they're not writing, very rarely are they writing parts and saying, play that. They're saying, here's the chord changes. Here's the vibe of the tune. Here's the demo, you know, in there somewhere, find your, your way. And, and that's, you know, yeah. we also know it, you know, you can't be a drag on a session, of course. <laughs> and, but, but what you're talking about is almost the opposite. The efficiency that you create by knowing beyond your part, a knowing where your mistakes are and not being afraid to talk about them. And then doing somewhat of the engineer's work by making these notes and you're taking something 
and probably allowing these fixes to be done in half the time that maybe someone else would take. And these are all things that will add up to a producer deciding whether you know, you're going to get that next call, right? That's exactly right. So what were the different producers you worked with? I, 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 you mentioned Omar, Omardian, Foster, Tom Dowd, uh, Graydon. Um, personalities aside, because we know they're very different personalities, but yeah. way, how would they... Like, how would Foster run a session versus the way Omardian would? Or are there different ways you can sort of play? These are the type of camps of ways different guys would run sessions. Or was it all kind of universal that everybody kind of worked in a similar way back then? When I worked with David on production stuff, it always I always seemed to be in the room with him as an overdub. I wasn't on the tracking session, you know. And so... David, you know, it was very similar to Omardian or Jay. You know, they have the chart. They're, you know, listen to the song. We got to put guitar on this thing. What do you hear? You know, okay, cool. Listen. And I go, okay, I got some ideas of what I think I should do. Then you might be in the control room with him. Which guitar, Telecaster, Les Paul, Strat, you know, what you have to do sonically, and you're dialing stuff in on your rig, you know, and the engineer's working, and then you come up with a part and and you lay it down. And and it's it's with a being a guitarist, it's very um, as I said, they're looking for that creative aspect, you know. With Omardian, same thing, you know. I'm doing sessions with Michael, and it's always like, yeah, find a bit, find a thing that works in this track. So, I mean, it was, it was all, I mean, there was kind of a system to making those pop records back then. There were certain sounds they were always looking for the over the, the overdrive sound, the, the, the clean strat or telly kind of police-ish kind of sound, or the kind of pingy kind of t- strat thing. Um, the muted guitar, single note. That's what we love. The, the big, <laughs> the big fat chords with the, with the, you know, arpeggiated broken chords with the chorusing. There was a system to it where we all kind of played similar stuff, you know. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I would encourage our listeners to go to MartyWalsh.com and check out, if you're a personnel geek, check out uh, the credits page oh, yeah. because uh, you already mentioned a lot of the producers you've worked with, but let me just tick off a few others that people may be interested who listen to this podcast. Um, you worked with Tommy LaPuma on yeah. Randy Crawford's Wind Song album, yeah. um, Gary Wright. Uh, you yeah. also worked with David Foster on Sheena Easton's uh, Dream Worth Keeping single. Um, Steve Perry, you've worked with Richard Perry, uh, Graham Russell on an air, air supply album, wrote the song with him. 
Did you? But yeah. You have one story. Maybe we'll come back to that because you asked me to ask you about a session that you worked on with Greg Perry cutting the nine to five single for Dolly Parton. Oh, yeah. The reason I wanted to bring that up is this. I become a known commodity in L.A. because I played on a hit for Yvonne Elliman. And that story, that's a really good story. <laughs> but but anyway, I play on this. That started me. That, that record, it was called Love Pains. It was a song my brother wrote. Let me let me tell the story, and then we'll get to the Dolly thing. So I'm I'm trying to break into the session thing. I'm playing on song demos for fifty bucks, right? And I go see Buzzy Featon, who's playing with Neil Larson at, at, at a club in Hermosa Beach. And Buzzy's playing through this amplifier. It's a Roland JC120. And I go, well, if Buzzy's playing through a 120, that's pretty cool. I think I'm going to buy one. So I go buy the thing. And it's got a stereo chorus in it that's that goes through these two. It has two 12-inch speakers. Now everybody was mono at the time. Everybody had small Princeton amps or whatever deluxe reverbs. They're all mono, so there were always two guitar. This is 1979. There's there's two guitar players on every session. There are always two guitar players because you are left and right. Here's a guy on the left, guy on the right. So I buy this amplifier. And my brother Dan writes a song called Love Pains. And Yvonne Elliman is going to be the, it's, she's going to do it. It's going to be her single. And I put a part on this song on a demo for 50 bucks, right? Steve Barry is the producer. They hire this band to do the date. It's Jeff and Mike Beccaro on the date. Michael Amartian's on keyboards. Jay Graydon is the guitar player. And they go to hire the next guitar, the second guitar player unavailable steve barry calls four guys none of them are available on that day at that time <laughs> so my brother dan goes hey i know a guy yeah <laughs> he goes he goes listen why don't you just hire my kid brother he played the part on the demo you like the part they were they wrote my part out Omar and took my part off the demo and wrote it out to have someone else play it right, right? Yeah. have somebody else play it i got more stories like that oh good <laughs> anyway <laughs> but anyway um so Steve Barry hires me. I get this call, you know. Oh, cool. I played on one album by then. It was by Seals and Crofts. The, they were recording at Seals and Crofts studio for this session. Oh, I know the studio. I know the engineer. <laughs> and, I, and I got an amp that runs in stereo. I have the wherewithal. I go, I go, Joe, Joey Bogan. I go, Joey, put two mics on this amplifier and pan it left and right. And you're going to pee in your pants, bro. <laughs> Right? So we go out to do the set. We go out to track, right? And we're doing love pains. And my part is my part is paramount. It's it's the biggest thing in the intro. So we go back and we listen to this the playback. And everybody's like, what is this? What is this thing? There's this like wide guitar coming out of the speakers. I'm telling you, I couldn't do anything wrong. We did another song where Omardian had written out a guitar part. The song is called um, uh, Green Light. And Omardian had written this guitar part out. And and lucky me, I'm I'm reading this thing, figuring out a way to play it. And I'm like, oh. I could use these open strings with this broken chord and kind of play it like this. And Graydon is not, is to my left, and there's a baffle between us. And he looks over the baffle and he says, "Hey Marty, how are you playing that? I want to double it." And I'm like, <laughs> it sounds yeah, like Jay, it's like this. And I'm like, dude, you know, 
He probably wanted to harmonize it, though, right? So it could sound like uh, yeah. wire, wire choir. choir. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, you start showing up on records by Michael Amardian. Yeah. And everybody's calling. Sure. So anyway, so I get the call. <laughs> I get the call. And we're at this studio. I never can remember, remember the name of it. It's in Hollywood near near um, Capitol. It's kind of up this hill. It was very, everybody used this place. So I get there. And it's it's Dolly nine to five you know and i'm like oh cool and they've got the chart written and they got those notes written in the beginning don't 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 you know tumble out of bed and i stumble to the kitchen and i get the rhythm part there's another guitarist that will not be mentioned who has the the fill chart like we want fills here and there or something all these people are in the control room you're not hanging you're not you know you're you're not in there schmoozing with dolly and the film people you know you're just sitting there doing okay i'm gonna do my gig you know i'm just gonna i'm gonna play my bit so you know i got an f i'm playing the riff you know and then we get to the the chorus section and i come up with a little thingy you know and i'm chunking away on some stuff and um and this other guitarist is doing the fills and things and then they wound up hiring uh jeff baxter to replace mm. the, the original phil guy and jeff baxter did a couple fills on, on the record but i mean it was just it was funny because it's such a legendary piece it is, it is her closer i mean you know when when you think of dolly yeah for sure i think they think of that one that's the signature song, sure. Because it was in a movie, and you know, and she was in the, she acted in the film, and but it was just another day at the office. And you just pack it up, you know. Okay, good, thank you very much, and you know, say hello to whoever in the thing. But they were, yeah. you, that's like you don't you don't step into that world no. when they're, <laughs> you know, worlds collide. You are. Um something of a i don't say unicorn but it's unusual for someone to be both a studio session cat and a road cat but you've toured with some significant acts as well you've previously mentioned uh super trap among them correct yeah that's an you know it's funny because because i i spent a few years in the 70s on the road i worked with eddie i worked with seals and crofts and i just made a determination that i wasn't going back on the road i said okay I put on my, I was driving a beat up old Volkswagen. I was living in a little crash pad. I bought all my guitars. I got them in the carded service. And I'm like, I'm not going on the road. And people were calling. Frank Zappa's office called me because I was a known commodity to do, to be on the road, you know? And, and I, and I go, yeah, sorry, tell Frank thanks, but I'm not going on the road. I mean, it's true. It's true. You want to read those charts, boy. Look, Woo. I couldn't I couldn't have done his gig and I knew yeah, that. But, yeah. but because my name is floating around, it's like, yeah, call that guy. Get him in here, you know. Uh, Roger Nichols called me. Mm. I mean, I did re I did records with Roger with Steve Barry. So Roger Nichols called me to make a John Denver record and his band is, you know, Jerry Chef and and James Burton and Glenn Harden. I mean, you know, these guys, legends, you know, just freaking yeah. legends. And they brought me in to be kind of the young pop approach, you know. So we did that. And I, and I did a little touring with John. I was like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll go out with John. You know, I'll go <laughs> with John Denver. Now we're getting into the mid-80s. And, um, and Super Tramp, I knew these guys because I knew the drummer. I grew up in Glendale, California. 
Bobby Siebenberg grew up in Glendale, California. He moves straight out of high school from England, gets in, winds up in Supertramp. They all move to L.A. This is 1979. And he walks into this club with his brother-in-law, Scott Gorham from Thin Lizzy, who also is from L.A. I go, dude, <laughs> we used to play in high school. I go, Bobby, dude, like you're what? You know, and so we start hanging out. So I get to know all the super tramp guys and I'm a, I'm a known commodity as a session musician. So when Rick Dave, when Roger Hodgson leaves the band in 84, something like that, he decides that he's going to leave the band. They're going to come, they are going to carry on as a, uh, as a four piece. Rick Davies calls me and says, I want, we want to play with you in the studio because we need a guitar player to do this record. And uh, we just want to get together and just jam, you know. So, you know, they they paid my session fee and we went to Bill Schnee's. The, my cartage guys brought all the stuff over and we just played. We just played music, played blues and played some things, you know. And then uh, they were getting ready to do Brother Where You Bound, uh, this the, the follow-up album to Famous Last Words. And uh, I got the call, you know, Rick calls me. And so we did those sessions with Kirschenbaum over at uh, Ocean Way. So I'm talking to my wife and I go, look, Supertramp wants me to go on the road. These guys are huge. And I think I want to go do this. And we had a, we had a young, my son was, was just, re, you know, he was a one year old, my son, Ian. And I said, you know, I, I, this, this is big. You know, I mean, I wouldn't go on the road with anybody, you know, um, Eddie Money wanted me to, <laughs> to go on the road. And I'm mean, like, you know, I, I just, I was so busy doing sessions. I'm like, Ed, I love you, man. But I just, you know, I, that was 82, something like that. But with Super Tramp, I was like, wait a minute. This is another level. Sometimes you just make these calls, you know, and, and yeah, I went on back on the road, you know. I wanted to bring you back to earth for one second because you mentioned Eddie Money and the No Control album is one that I really dig. And uh, you're all over that according to the credits. So, uh, I was listening to that the other night, and that is always, to me, been a really fiery guitar record. There's some great stuff on that. Now, rhythm, lead, uh, mix of both. What roles were you playing in that one? Well, the way that that... I was I played rhythm guitar. Jimmy Lyons, the guitar player with Eddie. Jimmy Lyon was going to do the, 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 the spot, but Jimmy, you know, he's interested in playing solos. Okay. That's his thing. Uh, the first thing we do is a song called shaken. We're rehearsing it. We're just, I'm auditioning for this gig. So, um, I don't have a guitar with me right now, but, but the song shaken is, is, is three chords and they're power chords. Right. So I go, well, I can't do power chords because I want this gig. <laughs> if I just play power chords. That's what's that? That's nothing, you know. So, so I I come up. They they play the. I don't know. Somehow I you know I get acclimated to the song. And the first thing I do when we hit the chorus section, I play. It's in the key of B. I play an open E string, an open B string. Then I fret the minor third in the seventh on a on a b minor chord i fret it here on the seventh fret and i drag it down to to the fifth in the root of of b power chord power chord you know 
And I did that because I knew I had to come up with something creative. I had to go, oh, they had to go, who's this guy? What's he doing? Is it different, you know? Yeah, yeah. So that was the part. I wind up doing the session with, um, you know, I wind up doing that. And and I wound up on most of the record. All the hits, for sure. Yeah, Tom, yeah. Tom you know, kept bringing me back, you know? And what was fascinating to me is that is that there are a lot of parts on that, that album. I did the basic tracks. They go to Miami and they do the overdubs with Jimmy. And he's brilliant, brilliant guitar player. All those guitar solos, all the lead stuff was just fantastic. I mean, he played phenomenally on that record, you know. Um, but there was a lot of my parts that wound up being double-tracked, where he double-tracked them. Or Alan, or Alan Pasco, I believe, was uh, doing the keyboards on it and keyboard overdubs and he double track stuff so i get the record and i go well my part's kind of buried <laughs> but it's like right there because it's like it was like that's the part i played but they built it up and built they, around you know. it yeah but the best the best story about that record man is this one i'm i get to the session i don't know third day fourth day of tracking and tom, i'm there at 10 o'clock in the morning get tuning up Tom Dowd comes outside to the to the tracking room and he says, Marty, listen, this is God's honest truth, guys. Eric is making up. Eric's making his new album and he's coming out of rehab. And and he, I want to have a guitar player there that that can kind of he can bounce off of. And would you be interested in doing this record? <laughs> <laughs> well let me think about that i go uh yeah you know hello so anyway august of whatever year that was 81 i get a phone call from tom's assistant she's in miami tom wants to book you on um or actually no it wasn't august it was more like first of the year beginning of the year we, we got the dates looks like we're going to be booking august you know can you do it yeah i can do it Phone call, you know, de you know, three weeks later. Oh, we're moving it to October. Can you still make it? Yeah, I can still make it. Great. And I'm like, this is yeah, cool. This yeah. is like, this is it right here, man. Yeah. I, he's my hero. Eric Clapton, Blues Breakers. That's it. That's where mm. I learned how to play guitar. After that, crickets. <laughs> oh no, nothing. No. So, so I get the so the album comes out. It's called Money and Cigarettes, and it's Ry Cooter. And Albert Lee. Oh, those guys are pretty good. And I'm yeah. like, oh, well, okay. I got bumped by Ry Coot and Albert Lee. Now, I, I spoke with, I knew Albert a little bit, and I spoke to him, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago. He came through town, and we were all having dinner. And I said, Albert, you know, I was supposed to be on that record, man. Like, he, Dowd asked me to do it, but I got shelved, you know. And he goes, Eric didn't have any songs. Uh. And Albert was playing with Eric, so he was on to be on the date but he goes yeah they, they they wanted rye because you know i mean i think eric probably went yeah who's this jerk from freaking california we don't need that guy <laughs> get rye cooter man yeah. you know give me somebody you know substantial yeah, maybe. i need some session geek from la you know someone with cachet but i'll tell you the resume i'm looking at right now looks pretty impressive but anyway yeah man, i missed my shot you know well that was a fascinating um story this interview was really cool because i didn't realize that Every name you brought up was going to be a household name to this podcast. So that was fortuitous, as well as many others. So, Marty, thank you for coming on uh, and uh, spinning some yarns. You are welcome back anytime you can bring Luke with you. Uh, 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but well, let's do it again because I'm sure you've got more stories to tell, and um, we'll just call this part one for now. Oh man, I got a million. I love doing this kind of stuff, man. This is part one, man. I would love to do it again. Cool. Well, until next time, we'll we'll see you in part two. But you won't get crickets from us. We'll actually call you back. <laughs> All right. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I guess we have another new name to be on the lookout for whenever we're scraping for personnel. Yeah, I bet we're going to see it. Now that we know it, we're going to see it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I guess that's kind of uh, laying down the foundation for my lightning round. Are you ready? Do you have a uh, Marty Walsh-related lightning round? Uh, believe it or not, yes. Well, I have one question before we get to that. Maybe it was true for you, but all I could think of while he's telling the story about how he bought the Roland JC120, the stereo amp with the stereo chorus, and he's telling the engineer to you know put the two mics on it mm-hmm. meanwhile he's also telling the story about uh uh jay graden and i'm thinking is, is graden looking at that thing saying yeah but man is that going to be in phase or what <laughs> yeah yeah it's out of phase man uh, everybody appears to do a, a imitation of graden because marty sounded just like how are you fingering that man <laughs> uh, no one does it better than john zaka though truth uh so okay now you may uh, call the lightning down all right lightning come on down Ooh, sauce all right um so uh, it's your turn to go first what do you you found at sea <laughs> you're not gonna believe this uh-oh i actually brought well, I'm just going to spring it on you because this is like sh- going to be shocking. It's going to be shock therapy. You're going to be shocked because oh. I'm bringing a version of Baker Street to the podcast what? by Waylon Jennings. Hit it. <laughs> Winding your way down on Baker Street Light in your head and dead on your feet well, 1987 Okay, now I've heard everything It's not like they were hiding it It was the first track on the album, too oh, Wow, they were leading with it Yeah Nice That's leading with your chin, man uh, uh, Yes Alright, well, that's pretty good Found yeah. it, see Alright, um, this, I uh, have some viewer mail Mail's in I believe this is listener Paul. This is somebody who used to email us, but then um, considered their email to be too janky. So he started tweeting, direct messaging at me. Oh, okay. And he goes by Zero Sum Game. Um, So you know who you are, listener Paul, um, or whoever. He sends this. Serious question. Did Todd Rundgren invent Yacht Rock? For which he submits this song. It's from the 1972 album. Can I give my answer first? No. You have to well, that is my answer. So, but go ahead. <laughs> um, this is off the Something Anything album from oh, 1972. Yeah. So it does predate Yacht Rock. Indeed. So let's hear a little bit of It Wouldn't Have Made a Difference.
But the interesting, funny thing is, is you got to speed it up to 1.25 because then it sounds like this. So I was just as surprised as you probably. It starts to sound a little like a uh, Christopher Cross track. It does. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because I immediately thought about the Christopher Cross song that they wrote when Christopher was just screwing around playing his quote-unquote Todd Rundgren chords. That's right. <laughs> he did so say that. Maybe Todd Rundgren Todd. did invent yeah, right. Oh, wow. He well, just, certainly, you know, in, in the proto era, and, yep. and Todd Rundgren would definitely be, if you were to make a list of who were the proto Stalwarts, you'd have to think Todd Rundgren. For sure, for sure. sure. All right, uh, I have an interesting buried treasure that is Marty Walsh uh, related. So I'm looking at his, again, go to his website, which we'll post in the uh, show notes, and check out the credits, because it's just, it's amazing how much session work he did in addition to his live work. But you remember the tune that I brought up once um, as a, I think it was off the map. No, it's Found at Sea. It was Betcha by Golly Wow by yeah. Prince, remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you got a uh, little note from uh, listener Rick. Rick Such, remember? Oh, that he, it was written by, it was originally done by what? The, the Stylistics. Stylistics. I was yep. going to say so, Chai Lights or whatever. Yeah, Stylistics. So thank you, Rick, from Inside Music Cast for that little tidbit. Yeah. But Marty Walsh played on the Dion Warwick version which is off the Friends in Love album from 1983. That's the Yachty pro- classic. Produced Ooh. by Jay Graydon. Here's Betcha by Golly Wow by Dionne Warwick. Hey, betcha by Golly Wow Wow, by golly, betcha. So, yeah, that was Jake Graydon hiring him, too. Like, how cool is that? His yeah, well, he had, he had to pay him back for showing him how to finger that <laughs> That's thing, true. right? That's true. All right, uh, my buried treasure falls under the category of, uh, I forgot that I forgot that one, oh. kind of. And um, I always thought that the only big hit that I knew of from Dan Hill was Sometimes When We Touch, Yeah, right? Um, and that's featured... It, greatly in that docuseries that was on Paramount Plus about soft rock. Yep. So this is not really yacht rock here as much as it's, uh, maybe he would have been comfy. I don't know. But I think some people think that that song maybe is related to yacht rock. But Dan mm-hmm. Hill, uh, we go back now to 1987, and I had no idea that he had another big hit until I heard it, came up somewhere, and I'm like, wow, I remember that song. But I never remember Dan Hill having anything beyond that first song. So mm-hmm. this is 1987. It's a duet with Vonda Shepard. It's called Can't We Try. Can we try just a little bit harder? Can we get just a little bit more? Can we try to understand that it's love we're fighting for? Can we try just a little It's funny you bring that one up because I just rediscovered it myself about... Uh, six weeks ago, and I have it in my list for uh, buried treasure. I just uh, haven't gotten to it yet. Yeah. You had it classified as a buried treasure as well, too. Yeah, right, good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was produced by the way by John Kapek, who was the longtime co-writer with uh, um, Mark Jordan. So there's your yacht rock connection, oh. though very loose. Yeah, cool. All right. Uh, what do you have for off the map? Then? Off the map, and now this is loosely related to Marty Walsh because he played, of course, on uh, that 
um, Donna Summer album, the one that had her big hit, She Works Hard for the Money, he played on a song called Woman. In fact, he plays a solo on Woman that's uh, pretty fire. So I want to let you hear a little bit of that. That's uh, Marty Walsh on the lead there. But yep. it got me digging into that album. And so I'm looking at the songs to see which ones had the greater spins. Like, is there a, uh, a radio hit here that I'd forgotten about? And I clicked on this one, and it instantly came back. Another one of those, can't believe I forgot that I forgot this one. And this is Donna Summer with Musical Youth oh. of Pasta Dutchie fame <laughs> doing Unconditional Love. Remember this one? I have to say, I don't really remember that one, but that is a fun little ditty. Yeah, it's it. Talk about earworm. Yeah, man, earwig, earworm. I had no idea that uh, the past the Dutchy guys were on that. Yeah, they just do some like singing a little bit, and then they do their talking at the end, which maybe is their staple. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's funny that you happened upon that record because yeah. my own off the map is from the record. Uh, she works hard for the money, and it is the title track. She works hard for the money because I was contemplating the song a few weeks ago before I even knew who my, uh, Marty Walsh was. And I'm like, I know that song's not Yacht Rock. Right. But there's something in there about it that reminds me of Yacht Rock. Well, I come to find out it's written by Michael O'Mardian <laughs> with Donna Summer. He uh, produced it, plays on it. Mm-hmm. Um, listen to the personnel on this not rock, Yacht Rock album. Yes. Okay. okay. Uh, and then we'll play a little of the tune, She Works Hard for the Money. But uh, Michael O'Mardian, Michael Boddicker on synth, Marty Walsh on guitars. We've just recently heard of him. Ray Parker Jr. on rhythm guitar, Jay Graydon on guitars, Nathan East on bass, Mike Baird drums, Lenny Castro congas, uh, Chuck Finley on horns, Gary Grant here. Hey, so those are your horns, right? Jeez. The hey, hey kids. Um, sounds pretty yachty, right? What year was it? 1984, 85? Holding for your year. 1983. Oh, so it still would be within the the classic yeah. years. But So now that you know all that personnel and backstory, see if you hear anything in this synthy hit that resembles Yacht Rock. She works hard for the money. I listened to that song, like I said, when I dug into that album, and it was one of those songs you couldn't escape at the time, and I got so tired of it, but boy, when I listen to it now, it is so well-written, and so well-produced, and now we know why, you know? Absolutely, and that's like what how I would classify the Pointer Sisters catalog from that same Indeed. era. I didn't like it at the time, yeah. and now I go back and listen to it, and I love it. Yeah, this sounds just like Pointer Sisters era stuff, for sure. All right, well, reminder to go to YouTube.com uh, and find our channel, and we have much more bonus content with Marty Walsh, including uh, discussion of his role at Berkeley College of Music, mm-hmm. uh, including much more longer versions of some of the stories that he told in today's episode, <laughs> Yeah, um, and even, maybe, you might catch the words, Ahoy polloi. 